Well, just a word uh, before we begin this morning. Um, uh, Lily Cisneros uh, videotaped our Easter service, and uh, we're very thankful for that. And she's provided some DVDs, and um, she did all of this at her own expense and her own time. And uh, these DVDs are on sale, and we're selling them simply because uh, they have value uh, for $10 a piece. And all that money will go to our debt reduction. So any money that you put, if you want to put more, you can. But uh, those DVDs are available and we'll make them available to as many of you as want them. So a mark on your response card if you would like an Easter DVD it's the, of the entire service. And uh, it's, it's so wonderful. I mean, it was one of the events of our church's history that will always be remembered. I mean, those hundreds of people coming in for the Easter egg hunt and the people that raised their hand during the service to receive Christ. And it's just it's just a wonderful event. And you might want to have a copy of that. It's uh, it's really great. In fact, I noticed while I was preaching, you could hear the children yelling and screaming and having a good time uh, back uh, uh, where they were playing. So it's really, really a wonderful, wonderful thing. So if you'd like a copy of that, mark your uh, response card and we'll be sure to get that. And then you can just drop $10 in the offering plate, an extra $10 uh, when you do that. So we're um, uh, continuing this series that we're called Summer Cruising. And we're looking at uh, stories of God's activity among his children on rivers and lakes and oceans. And uh, I'm doing these first three. And then uh, Corey's going to do a couple of uh, Sundays. Steve Reed's going to do one a couple this summer. It's going to be a great uh, series. I'm very excited about it. And today we're doing Crossing the Red Sea Part 2. Um, last week, uh, let's just kind of look at the uh, review, the landscape of where we are with the Israelites. So the Israelites have their toes in the water. Uh, we don't know how many, but there's at least a million people there ready to cross the Red Sea. And they're looking at this water. And then and that's bad enough, because how do we get over this thing? Uh, then someone turns around, and they look and they see the dust of 10,000 chariots. Chasing after them. Pharaoh once again reneged on his promise to let my people go. And he's chasing after the Israelites. And his desire is to simply destroy them and to wipe them out. So here the Israelites are faced with uh, this water, this great body of water before them. What do we do with this? And they look behind them and they see the dust of the chariots of the Egyptians. The Egyptians literally nipping at their, their heels And they say, what do we do with this? And then the Lord says through Moses, do not be afraid. Stand firm. And you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, this is a key phrase, the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You you need only be Still, last week we talked about how that all of us have these Egyptians coming after us, the the old life, right? The old sins, the past sins, those things that we, 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 we regret and the things that we feel badly about. And those old things are kind of in our rearview mirror and we see the dust of these things. And, oh, no, it's going to capture me again. But the promise of this text that we looked at last week is that these Egyptians that you see today, You will never see again. If you experience the deliverance of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you allow his blood to wash away your sins and your past and your addictions and everything else, 
the Egyptians that you see today, you will never see again. And we talked about that last week, how that God has redeemed you. He has freed you from your sin. But guess what? Many people walk around without being delivered from their past, delivered from their addictions, delivered from the things that they regret. And God's promise is that he wants to deliver you from those things as well. He wants you to walk in light and life and renewed faith and vigor. He wants you to experience that every single day. Not just redemption. God, thank God for that. Our ticket's punched. We're going to heaven. Thank God for redemption. Thank God that our sins have been forgiven. Thank God they've been wiped away. But you know what? You can be delivered from the power of your past and the power of your sins. That's God's promise to the Egyptians. That's God's promise to you. Now, that was last week. You know, we're not even started on this week yet. Okay. Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. Now, Moses says, okay, here we go. The Red Sea before us, the Egyptians behind us. The Lord says, basically, to Moses and to the children of Israel, tell the people to stop praying and move. <laughs> That's the phrase, the literal phrase in Hebrew. Tell the people to stop praying and move. You know, God, what do we do? What do we do? Well, sometimes you have to get up and do something. Sometimes you just have to move. And so the Israelites get up. Moses raises his staff and this incredible thing, not like tomato soup with Bruce Almighty, you know, parting, right? You remember that? But the Red Sea, probably anywhere from 10 to 30 feet deep, the Red Sea parts, and they pass through a million strong, pass through on dry land. Listen to Exodus 14, 29 to 31. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians, listen to this, Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. Don't you want to see that? Don't you want to see your sins and your addictions and your past lying dead on the shore, never to be alive again? And when the Israelites saw the great power the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. Here the children of Israel now are redeemed. They are freed. They are blessed. And guess what? They are delivered. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. So life is good, right? The enemy is destroyed. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm one of the million Egyptians, I'm thinking, I think I'm going to go first. You know, Moses, I'm going to be right next to Moses. Because a million, how long does it take a million people to walk? And we, at, at some estimates that the, the Red Sea, probably where they crossed was about a mile wide. You know, how long is that going to take? So yeah, just in case the water doesn't hold, I want to be first through there. But these people, all of them got through on dry land. Their enemy was covered. Their future is before them. What do we do now? How do you respond? Think about it. Put yourself in this position. How do you respond to this most incredible event of your life? What do you do now? You're redeemed. You're forgiven. You're delivered. Your enemy is dead, never to chase you again. What do you do now? John Ortberg, in one of his books, he's one of my favorite authors, tells a story. And he says it's really not a story, it's more of a parable. Or um, some of you might recognize it as a fairy tale. And here's the way this parable goes. 
Uh, John Ortberg writes this. There are two young, devoted, loving parents of a six-year-old boy. They take their boy to Toys R Us because they love their son and they know how much joy Toys R Us brings him. Predictably, he finds the toy of his dream. Uh, He's seen it on television. Uh, He has some of his friends have it and they have told him that it is the best toy in the history of toydom. It's just like the best. So the little boy looks at his loving parents, mommy and daddy, and he says, Oh, mommy, daddy, dear, um, if I get this toy today, I promise you that I'll never ask for anything again. In fact, mommy, daddy, dearest, how I love you. Mommy, daddy, please hear my heart in this. If you get me this toy, I will be grateful for the rest of my life. Now, although the toy is very expensive, the parents say, well, you know, it's worth a shot. Maybe if we buy this six-year-old this toy, maybe, just maybe, he will be grateful for the rest of his life. They're somewhat naive, I would think. So they purchase the toy, and incredibly, amazingly, remember, parents, this is a fairy tale, it works. The boy grows up, And he is forever grateful. He never once asks for anything else. He grows up. Things don't go so well in his life. Uh, He gets married. He has three children. But his wife runs off with another man. He still doesn't complain. At age 50, he loses his job and his security and his home. At age 70, Social Security collapses. That's not a fairy tale. And, And he is destitute and alone and absolutely miserable. But... He never once complains and is always grateful. Why? Because at age six, he got the most important toy in his life. And he promised that if I get this toy, I will always and forever be grateful for the rest of my life. Now, question. Does life work this way? Some of your parents are going, oh, I only wish. Now, those of us who have given in to our kids, and that includes all of us at different times, how did that work out? When you got your child that toy that they said, Mommy, Daddy, hear my heart in this. If you get me this toy, I will be grateful for the rest of my life. Did it work? Well, we say no. (laughs) I remember when uh, my daughter, who's 38 years old now, or she will be 38, I remember when she was a little girl. This was in the... um, uh, late 80s, Beanie Babies. Anybody? Some of you are young enough to have wanted a Beanie How many of you as a kid had a Beanie Baby? You're young, okay? You're young, okay? And, and, and my daughter wanted a Beanie Baby. And she didn't say these exact words, but her, her, the message she left me was, Daddy, if you get me a Beanie Baby, I will love you forever. Now, she also gave the other message, you know, if you don't get me a Beanie Baby and you, you know, fill in the, the dots there. But, but we say to this child, this six-year-old boy, we say, this is a foolish child. He's immature. Uh, he doesn't recognize that a toy could never and would never bring him permanent happiness. Now, now here's the problem with this whole parable. It's not just immature, naive little boys that believe this. We believe it too. You and I. 
each one of us would confess that throughout our lives, and maybe some of us even right now, we have come to believe that the right toy translates accomplishment, acquisition, accolade. The right toy would make us happy so that we truly would be happy for the rest of our lives. God, if only you would let me have this job. I promise you, I'll never ask for anything. It's kind of a foxhole conversion. Lord, if you, this girl that I'm in love with, if you'll just let her say yes to my proposal, I promise you, I will be happy for the rest of my life. It's kind of a when-then syndrome. When this happens, this acquisition, this accomplishment, this accolade, when this happens, then I will be satisfied and I will be happy. If I get that new job or that new girlfriend or if LeBron James gets that title that he wants, you know, then I will be fully happy and satisfied. If I get my finances in order, if I get that one, that one great sexual experience that I've been wanting, then I will look to the heavens and I will declare, God, I, I promise this, I will be grateful for the rest of my life. Here's an early take home from this text. Accomplishments, acquisitions, or accolades will never make you permanently happy or grateful. Let me say that again. Accomplishments, acquisitions, or accolades will never make you permanently happy or grateful. That includes a toy at age six, a dream home at age 40, or financial security at age 70. Now back to our friends, Moses and the children of Israel. Facing the Red Sea, Israel, uh, Egyptians are nipping at their heels. God does a tremendous miracle and parts the Red Sea. There is freedom there. There is deliverance. And, 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 and imagine yourself in that position where you step on the other side of the uh, Sea of Reeds, on the other side of the Red Sea, and, and it's dry land and you're safe. And the enemy is scattered all over the shore and they're dead and they're never going to bother you. What are you going to do with that? Listen to what happens in Exodus 15, the first couple of verses. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I can't think of a better way to express this amazing feeling of euphoria, freedom, deliverance, redemption. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for He is highly to be highly exalted. The horse and its rider He has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise Him. My Father's God, and I will exalt Him. They rejoiced. They danced. They sang. They blessed God. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, um, Sherry said, You know what? I haven't seen Braveheart since the movie came out. And that was a long time ago. And I said, are you sure? Do you remember how kind of graphic that is? He said, I, 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 I want to see it. So we put it in the, uh, uh, in the machine and we turned it on. And ten minutes into it, she was in bed and I was riveted. And I watched Braveheart again. And at the end of Braveheart, I couldn't go to bed. I wanted to paint my face blue and attack the devil and anybody that was against God and just kind of, you know, and, and that's the way the children of Israel were. 
paint our faces blue. We can do anything. God is on our side. Moses is our leader. We can do anything. Paint our faces blue. Let's go. We can do this. They are grateful and they are filled with faith and they blessed God. We can do anything. We're set free from bondage. We have security. The enemy will never again chase us. What a party. How grateful. What joy. The Israelites, I'm sure, said many times to each other and to Moses, Lord, because you gave us the desire of our heart, because you gave us more than we could have ever asked for, oh God, I will praise you and thank you for the rest of my life. Exodus 15:11. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders. Oh Lord, you are the man. You are the God. You are the one who made it happen. And we are so filled with joy and praise and and, and I will praise you and thank you and honor you and, and bow down to you for the rest of my life. And then three days later, some of the Israelites are still hung up from the party, hung over from the party, excuse me. Listen to what Exodus 15:22 to 24 says. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea And they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That is why the place is called Marah. It means bitter water. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? Have you ever found yourself in that place? Now we know all of our six-year-olds have. Because three days after, three days after your six-year-old got that toy that he would be grateful for for the rest of his life, he wants something else. Maybe at Fry's or maybe at Walmart, but he wants something else. The word "grumble" here mean, has the idea of a, a kind of a blaming, complaining kind of spirit. It's not just "oh boy, I hate what's going on," but it's it's blaming. And, of course, the text shows that they blamed who? Moses. Now, when they get tired of blaming Moses, guess who they blame? God is the next one on the list. They blame Moses and they blame God. But there's this blaming and complaining. And the idea of this grumbling is that they are demanding of Moses that their circumstance be changed. Change my circumstance. Their trust, their faith was not in God their faith was in God's ability to make their lives work. Their faith, their belief, was not in the God of all creation, but the God who can make my life happy. That's what their faith and their trust was in. That's the blaming and complaining. That's the problem, that God was not their source of joy and gratitude. God and God alone. We have this circumstantial faith, the circumstantial joy, this circumstantial gratitude. And, and we all do this. That's why I gave the parable of the six-year-old little boy. We all do that. We forget the amazing things that God has done in our lives. 
And we say, yeah, but look at my circumstance now. And it's so bad. And God, why do you do this to me? And why do you pick on me? And my life is so hard and my job's no good. And my family's not working. And we're complaining and grumbling instead of putting our faith and our trust in the God of all creation, the God who gave you life and redeemed you, the God who gave life to your children and redeemed them, that is the God that we must believe in. You know, I, I, I love sports, as you know. And uh, after the NBA Finals, I forget who it was, but one of the players, predictably, said, I just want to thank God. And I want to thank uh, the Lord uh, for giving me the strength to make all my three-point shots. And I want to thank God that he gave me the ability to, um, you know, totally uh, embarrass uh, LeBron James. And, and they're just you know, going through, and they're thanking God for all this. And I think to myself, how stupid is that? I have, I, have you ever heard an athlete come up and say, you know, I want to thank God that my shot just wasn't falling today. I want to thank God that I didn't box out when I should have. I, I want to thank God that we lost this game because really it's going to really help build my character. You don't hear everybody, anybody say that. Well, athletes are like the Israelites and we're like the athletes. Why can't we put God as the one that we put our faith in, not circumstances or circumstantial faith? I don't want to live with circumstantial faith. I don't want to live with circumstantial joy. I don't want to live with circumstantial gratitude. When my life is going good, I'm thankful. When it's not, everything's bad. And God, you're just being, you're picking on me. So what happened next? Now, at this point, if I'm God... And Moses is already getting kind of ticked off at the Israelites. But if I'm God, I'm thinking, you ungrateful chumps. You know, that's what I'd be thinking. I'd say, well, find your own water. But no, listen to what God does. Exodus 15, 27. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs. Why not one little trickly spring? That's what I would have done. I'd kind of begrudging God. You know, one little teeny sprinkle. You know, you figure it out. Twelve springs, 70 palm trees, and they camp there near the water. That screams the grace of God. That hollers from the mountaintops the mercy and grace of God. Now, in our view, we would say, well, they were so ungrateful. Just give them a little tiny stream. But God in His abundant grace and mercy, 12 streams, 70 palm trees, enjoy. And this water was so sweet. Not like Mara, not bitter. It was so sweet. And I'm sure that the Israelites began to dance and rejoice and, and sing praises again and fill up all of their, their cisterns with water and everything was good and they were dancing. And, and I'm sure many of them said, you know what, God? We blew it. We're sorry. We should have known after the Red Sea deal that you were going to take care of us. We should have trusted you and not our circumstances. Forgive us for that. We were wrong because you just showed once again that that you're a God who can be depended on. And God, from now on, I promise you, from now on, I will be grateful for the rest of my life. Oh, yeah? (laughs) Chapter 16. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses. Now they're including Aaron. Okay? Who else can we grumble against? The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. Isn't that pathetic? Oh, we should have stayed in Egypt and died there. You know, we should have, we were building bricks with no straw. That was a lot of fun. And we were being beaten by the Egyptians. That was good fun. And and our memories are so bad. It's like the Egyptians that we used to be part of. You know, we, you know that, that the sin and the brokenness that we used to... You know, after a while, you kind of say, well, that wasn't so bad. 
You know, I remember I told you last week about that, that, that fork in the road I came to, casino or go home, and, and the enemy was saying, you know, that, that wasn't so bad. The gambling thing, in fact, it was fun. And people are making a big deal out of it. It's not really a big deal. Come on! Turn right. You know, just turn right. Well, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. Oh, how short were their memories. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Grumble because of their circumstances. God, you and Moses and Aaron, you're all bad because you're not providing us with food. And Amazingly, God's grace comes through again. I would not have done this if I were God. That's probably it's good that I'm not God. I would not have done this. Look at verse uh, 13 to 15. That evening quail came and covered the camp. And in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, then thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, what is it? That, that, that word, what is it, is manna, manna. What is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, it is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. What is it? You've heard that phrase, right? When your kids are confronted for the first time with spinach or Brussels sprouts, God forbid. What is it? You know, I don't want, I, I, I don't like it. Well, have you tasted it? No, but I don't like it. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't you know, I'm, 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 a, I'm old and I don't like Brussels sprouts, so I know what they mean. I don't like it. I don't want it. Manna was wafers laced with honey. It's kind of like a, a nutritious wonder bread. If there's, I mean, that's kind of a, you know, you know. But it's like wonder bread, the feel and the taste that tastes good, laced with honey, and it's nutritious. Very versatile. You can bake it, boil it, barbecue it, make manna burgers, manna on a stick if you go to the Wilderness State Fair. Manna cotti, the ever-popular dessert, banana cream pie. I mean, it was good, and it was good for you. And, and, and Lord, this is so good. And every morning it's fresh, and we pick it fresh every morning. And it's so delicious. It's so sweet, and the water uh, is so sweet. And, and, and Lord, I know we grumbled before, and I'm sorry. We forgot about the Red Sea. We forgot about the water thing, and we forgot about your provision. And God, I'm sorry I did that, and I, I promise you now that you've shown once again that I promise you that I will be grateful for the rest of my life. Oh, I will always be grateful and thankful to you. And then they grumbled again. And Did you know that um, grumbling and complaining infects everything, especially people? Have you ever been around a person who is a uh, prodigious complainer, grumbler? Now, if you can't think of one, that's a problem because that means probably you're the one. You know, if you can't think of somebody that complains a lot, that's probably you think it's normal that everybody complains and you do it a lot. So, But if somebody can think of a time when they complained and grumbled about something, and remember, this is a way in which you're blaming somebody. It's not a matter of just saying, boy, I wish I had, uh, you know, some water. That's different. But complaining and grumbling, well, so-and-so didn't do this, this complaining. If you can think of a time when complaining and grumbling and blaming did any good, I want to know about it. Because I can't think of a time ever in my life when I have grumbled and complained, this has done one lick of good. Never done one lick of good. But why is it we continue to do it? Uh, there was a guy in our church in Roseville. I won't tell his last name, but his name was Jim. 
And uh, Jim was one of those guys. He was Swedish. And I, you know, I love uh, our denomination has Swedish ancestors. I love I love the Swedes in our church. But a Swede, Swedes are different. You know, they're a little bit stoic. You know, I mean, a charismatic experience for a Swede is a smile. You know, so you know, so you know, that's kind of as far as they go. Well, Jim would walk into a room that either church or a, a board meeting or a small group. He would walk into the room, and you could feel the air go out of it. Because no matter what you were talking about, Jim was like on Saturday Night Live, uh, uh, Debbie Downer. Uh, he was like that. No matter what's going on, uh, you know, we're going to do so. We're going to give so much money to the missions. Well, that's nice that we're thinking about giving money to missions. But next Sunday, maybe nobody will come to church and there won't be any offerings. Okay, where did you come up with that? And, and he was always complaining and grumbling and something's not right and something's bad and something doesn't work. And, oh, it was just so hard to be around him. You remember what we talked about in James, our study in James, that words have the power to give life or to take life? Words have the power to lift up or to push down. And I think especially when it comes to complaining and grumbling and blaming, those words have the power to destroy, to push down. Now, Paul addressed this whole Exodus story when he was uh, talking in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And he addressed it because he said, I want you to know this story. And he's talking mostly to Jews, but also to Gentile Christians. I want you to know this story so that you don't make the same mistakes. Here's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 to 6. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. So Paul is saying, you know, all that they experienced there, we're kind of forefathers of them because that provision, that redemption, that deliverance that God gave, we find that in Christ. We have all of that in Christ Jesus. And then he continues, Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. We are to learn from the mistakes of the Israelites. Now, uh, Paul goes on and identifies uh, the things that the Israelites did. I want to just tick through those quickly so that you know what are the lessons we were supposed to learn from the Israelites. The first is this. These are the five great sins of Israel is what I call them. Five great sins of Israel. The first one is craving evil things. Now you say, well, pastor, define evil things. Come on, let's not play that game. You know instinctively. If you're thinking of something that you want to define, you don't know if it's evil or not, guess what? It probably is. It probably is. You know, if you're trying to get a pass on something, it's probably evil. Craving evil things. We've talked about this designer bait that Satan floats in front of us. It's each one of us has different things. It may be gambling. It may be alcohol, drugs, sex, power, a job, a woman. It could be any number of things. Craving evil things, this addiction, these things that we bend a knee to. You stay away from that. A second great sin of Israel, sexual immorality. A third great sin of Israel, idolatry. Anything, anything that puts God in second place. That's idolatry. 
The next is willful defiance. The thing that we see among the Israelites is this willful defiance. Every time they say, as soon as I've experienced something good in my life, God, I will praise you and thank you for the rest of my life. But they were so willfully defiant that as soon as they got hungry, as soon as they got a bunion, as soon as they got a hangnail, as soon as they got sunburned, they were back complaining and grumbling again. Does that sound familiar? You say, yeah, it does, my husband. Well, you know, try and remember yourself, okay? The last thing, the last great sin of Israel was simply grumbling and complaining. What good has it ever done to you or to anyone else? No matter what God did, how much he forgave and loved, how much he poured out, he lavished his grace upon the children of Israel. It was never enough. How many times has God given you that great toy, that amazing toy, that accomplishment, that acquisition, that accolade, that great thing? How many times has he given you that and you've said, God, if I only have this one thing, I'll be thankful for the rest of my life. And three stinking days later, you're saying, God, you're not good to me. You're not kind to me. The Bible says that it is Jesus and Jesus alone that can satisfy that deep hunger and craving. Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus is the water of life. Here's another take home for you. If you live in a culture of complaint, you will wither in the desert. I guarantee it. If you live in a culture of complaint, you will wither in the desert. Yes, but pastor, if you just knew my heart in this, if I, if I, if I just get this job, or if I just find this, this perfect man, if, if I just get this new toy that I saw at Best Buy, at that point, I know myself. I know how grateful I am. At that point, I promise you, I will be grateful for the rest of my life. But as soon as we identify something other than Jesus as the thing, we will be dissatisfied. We will be thirsty. We will be hungry for the rest of of our lives. How do we change from a culture of complaint? It starts with a heart, doesn't it? The heart that asks these questions. Who, when, what, how? Who? Who do I believe is responsible for the greatness, gratefulness level of my life? Now some of you are thinking, he just crossed over the line from preaching to meddling. <laughs> Who do you believe is responsible for the gratefulness level in your life? Someone else? Your spouse? Your boss? Your pastor? Moses? A friend? You see, brothers and sisters in Christ, you cannot put your personal joy or gratefulness in the hands of another person. That's too much power. We had a, there's a woman in our church in Lakewood. Um, her name is Carol Baca. Carol was a beautiful young woman in her 30s, but she had this debilitating disease called muscular dystrophy. And she was already in a wheelchair, and um, she was maybe the most gracious, grateful person I have ever known. This young woman, her husband left her because she was no longer a total woman, you know, and and her son was a teenager at this point and just kind of was doing his own thing. She was pretty much all alone. 
But I'll never forget what she told me one day. This is where the, 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 per, the person in the pew teaches the pastor something. Here's what she said to me. She said, Pastor, my gratitude is not based on the condition of my checkbook or my profession or my body. Isn't that beautiful? My level of gratitude is not based on my checkbook, my profession, or my body. It's based solely on the love of Jesus Christ for his daughter. Wow. Who do I believe is responsible for the gratefulness level of my life? Secondly, when? When is it a good time to be grateful? Psalm 118.24 says, This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. That's the answer. I know it kind of sounds simple and trite. It doesn't say, this is a really good day where I got my promotion and my wife is nice to me and therefore I will rejoice and be glad in it. This is the day. That means every day. Every day that the Lord has made, which he has made every day. Not when my marriage is healed. Not when I get my job. Not when I get that text from my girlfriend. Ooh. I have, uh, I, I've, told, I've told you Devin's stories before. Devin is my great niece, my, um, my sister's daughter's daughter. And uh, she's 14 years old, born with profound Down syndrome. She has a mental age of a two-year-old. And she's a big girl, 14, probably weighs 180 pounds. You know how Down's kids can be very big. And every, I see her every year when we go over to San Diego. And she is the most joy-filled, grateful girl I've ever met in my life. Her mother can scold her. Devin, don't do that. And Devin will go like this. And then she's immediately, I mean, she like, she like frowns for like four seconds. And then she's, let's do something fun, you know. Okay, I was punished and I deserved it. Now let's do life, you know. And this is a two-year-old, this beautiful, grateful, happy child. And do you think her happiness is based on her circumstances? Good grief. She's in this body, that she's a two-year-old in this body, and, and yet she has this grateful, joyful heart. Can we learn from a child? When is it a good time to be grateful? Every day. What? For what should we be grateful? Here the scripture is very irritating. Ephesians 5.20, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That, isn't that irritating passage? Let's remove that out of the Bible. You know? That and all of James, because I know some of you guys want to tear out all of James. James and, and Ephesians 5. Always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Everything. Now, that's not talking about like a specific tragedy or sorrow. That's not what the text is talking about. But it's talking about a perspective a perspective of life, that all things work together for good to those who love the Lord. All things, even bad things. A perspective of life that says God is sovereign and He's promised that He will make all things new. This, this temporary situation in my life is temporary. God is sovereign. He will make all things new. A perspective that says that God will write the last chapter of my life. A perspective that says life is temporary, include, including sadness and pain. A perspective that says our position in Christ Jesus is higher and deeper and greater and longer than any circumstance you find yourself in. Our position in Christ. How? How can I be grateful when life is falling apart? 
Habakkuk 3, 17 and 18, we read these words. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, all of that, right up to that comma, is circumstantial. Every single thing. Comma. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. Karl Barth calls this defiant gratitude. I want that. The Israelites needed it. I want it. Defiant gratitude looks beyond circumstances, beyond comfort, beyond accomplishments, acquisitions, and accolades. Seeing God as our source of gratitude, not what God does. Let me tell you why you should be defiantly grateful this morning. You are made in the image of God. God calls you His child, and we call Him Abba. We are the Beloved. You are part of the body of Christ, the eternal family of God. The blood of Jesus has washed your sins away. And hear this, the blood of Jesus has washed your sins away and those sins like the Egyptians will never be seen again. You are redeemed, delivered, loved, adored, secure in your faith in Jesus Christ. You will be with God and He will be with you for all eternity. That is defiant gratitude. Bow your heads with me, please.